Here's what I want to ask you to do, if you would. Hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't, you will see the verses partially on the screen. I know that our props are a little high today, so you may not be able to see all of it. Would you join me in 2 Peter chapter 1? And as you're turning there, 2 Peter chapter 1. And kind of for those of you that maybe our guests are not usually here, I want to mention that two things. One is that we normally dive a deep dive into a single passage of Scripture, uh, and we're not going to do that today. We're going to hit some highlights. So here's a confession. We're actually going to be hitting some highlights of previous passages that I've used in the past around Christmas, and I want you to see why right here out of this text. The other thing, before we get into our text, that I want you to understand is that when Mike says Jeff's going to preach a short message, everything is relative in Graceview terms, Right? So if you're normal church, you may say there was nothing short about that message, but if you're one of our regulars here, you'll say, oh, that was a little bit shorter than normal. So take that in relative terms. All right, so here's what's happening. What I want to do today, and I feel led by the Lord, is rather than, again, maybe next week we'll be on one passage and we'll go deep into that passage, but this morning we want to look at several texts, and again, We've looked at some of these, most of them, in the past. So why would we revisit some of the same texts? Without going into all the background, you're in 2 Peter. It's the last epistle that the Apostle Peter would write. Notice what he writes in chapter 1, verse number 12. So this is not a Christmas text. This is just simply why we're doing it this way this morning. Peter writes in his second epistle, verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Wish we had time. We could go back. He has enumerated eight qualities that a true Christian needs to be having built into their life. I'm looking at above in my text so that we will not be ineffective or unfruitful. Do you want to have an effective, fruitful Christian life? Or are you going to settle for an ineffective, unfruitful Christian life? The answer will largely rely upon these eight qualities that Peter calls for from his people. Watch verse 12. Again, Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. This is why I'm going here. This is why we're springing from here. Though you know them. You just heard the program. You heard the songs. You guys know this. Most of you are are regularly in church. And if not, still, some of you that are not regularly in church would still know the answers and the direction that I'm, uh, some of the things that I'm going to say this morning. It's like trying to tell a joke that you already know the punchline to, right? That's not easy to do. So why are we going to be hitting these highlights? Because again, look at verse 12 in the middle. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So Peter's saying, I know you know these things, and I know that you're already established in some of these truths. Verse 13, what he's saying is, yet I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. What he's saying is, I am reminding you of these things because I want these things to stir you up. Those of us who are Christians, sometimes we get frustrated, right, as we look around us and we realize This world has almost succeeded at completely taking Jesus out of Christmas. I mean, it it is just, I've never seen anything like it is right now in life. There will be people who will literally not even associate Christmas with its namesake, Christ. They're just going, it is something totally different to them. I'm I'm not being mean or preachy here, but I want to shoot straight with you. We get upset with them, but in this room right now, I'll promise you, are dozens of people 
that up to this point in the Christmas season, here we are six days before Christmas, and you have not really thought deeply yet about what Christmas really is. You've thought deeply about arrangements, and you've thought de- deeply about what you're going to buy this person and that. You've put a lot of thought, but there's some right here, and we're Christians. And so what we need to do this morning is just be reminded of the basic, fundamental, main wonders of Christmas. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I have four thoughts. So if you're saying like, Jeff, all right, I'm guilty. Man, that is me. We talk about them doing it. I've done it practically in my life. We're six days before Christmas. I haven't really thought deeply about what it's about. Where should our thoughts go at this season of the year? I want you to notice four key things about Christmas. And each one of these thoughts will get progressively shorter as we go through. Do you notice number one? Here's what it's about. God's miraculous incarnation. God's miraculous incarnation. So this is a topical message, a little different than we're used to. I want to ask you to join in the classic Christmas passage, John chapter 1. Would you flip there, John chapter 1. I hope you have your Bible open. Again, you'll see the verses on the screen, but it's great if you have it open. That way you can kind of mark and, and just let your mind glance around as we're listening John chapter 1 is a passage I've preached on, and I I dare say every Christmas I'm always going to refer to John chapter 1 because it's perhaps the greatest Christmas passage to look at. Notice John 1. It's going to take, take us into the deep end of theology. Are you ready? Here we go. In the beginning, John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning. You remember the Bible started that way back in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So now John, in the New Testament times, 2,000 years ago, is going to also take us back to the beginning. Kind of watch my arm right here. Let's do it this way. Here is creation. So we're going to say right there is creation. There's a a line of demarcation. But now we're going back before that. That's what we're reading. What about before there was any universe, any angels, any people, animals, plants, suns, anything of that nature? What about before that? And that's where we're going. Genesis 1 and now here John 1. In the beginning... Now let's go. You ready? In the beginning was the Word. I'm not going to go into all what John means there because I don't even understand all that John means. We're just hitting highlights. In the beginning was the Word. That's John's word for, as I'm looking across my page at the next column down at verse 14, the Word is what John is going to call the Son, and that's who his book is about. It's the gospel of John about the life of Jesus. Now, again, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The word with is key. With means face to face. The Word was with face to face with God. What's going on in the beginning? The Word was with God. And then, as if that wasn't enough, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a massive revelation and says, And the Word was God. So, wait a minute. Is the Word God or is God God? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word, God, in the beginning. And the Word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things... Catch this phrase, all things were made through him. We know that the word and God is excluded from this. All things were made through him. And if that wasn't clear enough, here it is. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
So here's what that does. That, here's, a, here's an important piece of information. Here we have creation. The all things and not anything was made, but that he made it. What that tells us is that when we look back into eternity past before creation, we now know that it is not set, separated into two phases. It is not in two phases. So we have creation. So it's not, you say, Jeff, what do you mean? We now know from verse 3, 1, 2, and 3, that there's not like way back here there was God. And then somewhere between that and here, the Word came. That's not what happened. So it's not like, yeah, there was God. And then all of a sudden, God and the Word square off with one another. They like realize, like, hey, who are you and who are you? And like, hey, we got a lot in common. What do you think? Maybe we ought to unite our powers. That's not what happened. Man, you're a lot like me and I'm a lot like What do you think? Let's unite and let's just become one. Okay, great. That's not what happened. They didn't say, hey, now that we're together, what do you think? Maybe in a few trillion years, let's do a creation and make a universe. Sounds great to me. I knew you would say it sounds great because I have omniscience. I have omniscience too. I knew that you would say that it's great that I would agree with you because I too have omniscience. And, and that can go on and on and on. Well, I knew that you would say that I would say that. Okay, can we just agree that, all right. That's not how it happened. There is God and the Word. Skip down to verse 14. Verse 14 is Christmas. And the Word became flesh and dwelt. John's writing. John's just saying, he's one of the 12 apostles of Christ. He's saying, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here he's talking about he and the others. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you're full of grace and truth, everything that comes out of you is grace and truth. And then he goes on and talks about the life of Jesus. So we know that this word becoming flesh is Jesus. So if you're taking some notes this morning, kind of think with me along this line. What's taking place? Let's go back here. You ready? Here's creation. Listen. In eternity past, go there in your mind. Far as you can go. Go back. There's nothing. There's nothing made. In eternity past, when there was nothing but the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God. So there's just God. There's only God. But because there's God, there is life. There's light. There's joy. I want you to think about it. Eternity past. There's only God. But because there's God, what is there? There's joy. There's laughter. You hear it? There's like you say, I don't know that. There's laughter and joy and love, and there's complete contentment. And it's only God. But because it is God, there is infinite knowledge and infinite power and infinite glory in eternity past. And now write your note. Any what our text is saying is in eternity past, when there was only God, there was the word. There was the Word because the Word was with God, and the Word was as equally God as God is God. And our text says the Word became flesh in the form of a little baby, we find out in the other Gospels. The Word became flesh. How did it happen? 
Quickly, let's move from John 1. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's a good book. You might want to study it sometime. Matthew chapter 1. We begin chapter 24, hopefully in the first Sunday of January this coming year. We've been going through it. Matthew chapter 1. Look at it quickly. We're talking about the miraculous incarnation. The miraculous incarnation of God. How did it happen? Well, you just saw in the, in the program, in the play, there was Joseph and Mary. And I'm skipping ahead in the scene. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Basically, they've already taken vows. They're technically, officially married. But they haven't consummated their marriage physically yet. Mary has gone off to see her cousin, and when she comes back, it is very clear she is well into term of expecting a child. Joseph knows that he has not done this. They've had no sexual relationship whatsoever, though they're already betrothed and, in essence, legally married. They're in a waiting period before they will consummate the final portion of their marriage. And then he sees her coming back and now realizes she's expecting. Joseph's a godly man. And he's not going to go into a relationship like that. She's been unfaithful as far as he can tell. So he's going to divorce her, but, verse 20, but as he, Joseph, considered these things, he's thinking how he's going, I don't want to shame her, don't want to hurt her, I, she's just been unfaithful, it's off. Verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So he's having a dream, an angel of the Lord appears to him saying, so here's what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Here's why. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Read between the lines. What this angel is saying is, Joseph, she's been telling you the truth. What you think is this wild, crazy account that she saw an angel and the Holy Spirit caused her to be pregnant with a child. She's telling you the truth. This child in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel says, what's going to happen? He just tells Joseph, listen up. Here's how it's going to go down. This will happen. Verse 21. She will bear a son. Get ready. Man. She's going to have a child. It's going to be a son. Now here's what else. The angel says, and you shall call his name Jesus. She's going to have a child. It's going to be a son. You're going to stick it out with her. You're not going to divorce her. You will name him Jesus because God has sent me to tell you to name him Jesus. Why? The name matters. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh, Jehovah, saves. You will name him Jesus. You understand? Yes, I understand. His name will be Jesus. Guess what? That's what they called him. Who named him Jesus? Joseph as far as an earthly person. Why is all this happening? Verse 22, Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, talking about Isaiah 750 years earlier. Look at verse 23. Behold, here's what Isaiah wrote. This happened 2,000 years ago to fulfill what, what was prophesied 2,700 years ago. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. I always like to point out the word and. She'll be a virgin when she conceives. She'll be a virgin when she bears a son. And they, you will call him Jesus. They shall call him Emmanuel. Why? Why is Emmanuel such a big deal? Because Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Emmanuel doesn't mean we could do it. Hey, we're going to make it. God's for us. Doesn't mean just God's for us. It doesn't mean like in spirit and inspirationally, God is with us. We're going to. No, what it means is literally Jesus, with Jesus, 
God is with us. Wherever, it's, it's, it's accurate to say wherever Jesus is, God is. Because God is literally with us. One of us. Those of you who have been here for years, please don't get mad. I cannot preach on Christmas without quoting Packer. Today I have two of Packer's quotes, and I use them every year in some form or fashion. I've cut some Packer quotes out, so give me that much credit. But I have to put this one in. What's going on? What happened? Packer writes the following. He says of Jesus, the Word, the Son of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, this baby. He writes the following quote. He was no less God than before. So if someone's thinking, okay, what happened? The Word was with God, is God, became flesh. I guess he was converted from God to being flesh, a human being converted from God to man. No, wrong terminology. He was no less God than before, but had begun to be man. He continues. Catch the wording. He was not now God. You say, okay, okay, he remains God, but surely a lesser version. No, no, no. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus. Oh, now what's happening here? He's not God minus some elements of his deity. He's God now because of the incarnation. He's God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. He continues, he who made man was now learning at Christmas. He was now learning what it felt like to be a man. What is it like to be a man? God is learning what it's like to be a man. And write this down as my, perhaps one of my all-time favorite quotes from Christmas. Packer writes the following. You hear me say it every year. It's in our notes every year. When we look at Christmas, what Packer writes is, here are two, in this story, in this account, here are two mysteries for the price of one. Here are the two mysteries for the right. When we study this, what really happened? What do we need to learn? Where do we need to move our theology? Two mysteries are revealed for the price of one. Mystery number one. Here it is. There is plurality in the unity of the Godhead. There is plurality in the unity of God. What does that mean? Jeff, what does this mean? The Word, they didn't know this in the Old Testament, but now we know the Word was with God and was God, but He's distinct from, isn't it saying the same? No, no. There's God, the Father, we call God the Father, and there's the Word that becomes flesh, we call Jesus, and now we know in God, there's a plurality of persons, and yet there's not a plurality of gods. There's one God, only one God. But what has become clear in the New Testament is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit has now been made clear. We still don't understand it all, but we believe it. There is plurality of persons in God. And the second ministry, mystery is what we're talking about this morning. The union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. The union, the blended union of Godhead and manhood, I could even add the word perfectly blended and united in the person of Jesus. I brought my cup like I always do each week. Is it possible? Is it possible to take every 
drop of water in all the oceans in all the world and put those in this cup at one time. He said, Jeff, there's no way we couldn't possibly do that, right? We cannot possibly do that. Is it possible that from this cup of water, if it were to be poured out, that this cup of water could fill all the oceans of the world? Right now, there's someone out in the middle of one of the seas or oceans, and they are far away from anything, and they look 12 miles in that direction, in that direction, that there's nothing. And somebody right now is in 1,500 feet of water. And if they were to hear this, they'd say, you, what? that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. Can you put all the oceans of the, of the world into that little cup? Not possible. Why are you saying this? Because I want us to understand that God has already done something greater than that when he put God, who is larger than the universe, into a tiny little embryo and a baby that was born on Christmas. He's already done greater than that. And if our mind doesn't go there and at least try to understand what Christmas is really about, then we're just going through the motions, Christians. Write this last thought now. Christmas signifies a major and permanent shift. It's a major shift. It's a permanent shift. I realize Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by that, what the Bible means is He has always been, always will be God. But 2,000 years ago, there was a major and very permanent shift that took place. So much so, guys, that our whole planet marks its time and its calendar from the years that were before Christ and to the years that are in the, the year of our Lord, 2021. Even people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't worship our God, they still acknowledge this person made such an impact on the world that the whole calendar system is in alignment with that event that we call Christmas. Major, massive impact. Eventually we'll get here in Matthew 28, verse number 18. Eventually we'll get there. Do you remember it? Jesus says, after his death and resurrection, he says, all authority has been given. Hear that phrase. All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. So I ask this question. I ask it of you. Hang on. Is that really accurate? That's weird wording. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says this. Since he's the word and the son of God, didn't he not already have all authority in heaven and on earth? Did he not already have that? Yes, as the word and as the son but Jesus is talking. Jesus is the man. And in chapter 28, what he's saying is he's talking about there was a moment of time after his death and resurrection, perhaps even at the ascension. I haven't studied exactly when this took place. All I know is that God the Father has bestowed and given all authority on heaven and all authority on earth to Jesus, the God-man. He has now been given the reins of the entire universe. This is where our mind needs to be. God's miraculous incarnation. Number two, flip over if you would, 2 Corinthians. Another one of my favorite, we preached on this years ago, spent a whole message on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll not be here as long as the first point, but we need to hit this. 2 Corinthians 8. In a moment, we're going to read verse 9. What's the context? It's pretty simple. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to churches in southern Greece 2,000 years ago. 
And he's telling them, I want you to give toward an offering because some poor saints over in Jerusalem, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are really suffering financially. And I want you to give toward an offering. And he's talking about how the churches in northern Greece have already given toward this offering. But if that wasn't enough, hey, give like them. They're poorer than you are. You should be given. You need to see how much they've done. This is your opportunity to give to the needs of the saints. So he's collecting an offering. But if that's not motivation enough, here's the real motivation. This is a great Christmas text. Just hit the highlights. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Here's Christmas. Why should you give? Here's why. For you know the grace, the giving. I'm asking Paul saying I'm asking you to give an offering. Think about this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that Jesus Christ is gracious? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was rich, yet, here, Christians hear this, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, he became poor, he's rich, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Did you catch it? He's rich, became poor, so that you, by his poverty, you who are poor, might become rich. So we're talking about Christ's extraordinary humility. Did I give that title already to the second point? I already give that. Christ's extraordinary. This is where our mind needs to go, and this is playing off the fur. So we have God's incarnation, what took place? Christ's ex- Christians. Listen, don't go through this season without setting aside some time and just thinking about the great humility that Jesus exhibited at Christmas time. Though he was rich. Now, guys, there's different levels of rich. Rich can mean you got more than you need, you got plenty, you have excess, you have abundance. But we know that there's different levels. Some have like, pretty good bit more than they need, and others have like a lot more than they need. I don't think any of us have as much as we want. I'm not talking about wanting. We're talking about need. So there's excess. That's not what the Bible means when it's talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. It doesn't mean, oh, he had plenty. He had excess. Know what it says. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. What does rich mean? Again, if you're taking notes, I want to share this thought. What this word rich means is not just like excess and abundance. It means that for, can I break it down this way? For eternity past, it's going to be some weird use of verbs. You're going to say, man, your verbiage is not like in the right tenses. It's just the way it is. What this text means is that for eternity past and eternity future and now and even after creation up until the time of Christmas, the original, in all of those times, eternity past, eternity future, here's the point, the Son of God was infinite, infinite, and measureless, and boundless in His attributes. That's rich. Like, hey, how much money do you have? I have this much more than I need. How much do you have? I have this much more than I need. And then there's this person over here, they have infinite amount of wealth. In what? Jesus Before he was Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Word, here's what I want you to understand. In his attributes, he was infinite and measureless and boundless. You see in your handout, like what attributes? Boundless, 
infinite, measureless power. Boundless, infinite, measureless knowledge. Infinite knowledge. Infinite wealth. Infinite glory. Infinite majesty. And yet, something happened 2,000 years ago. What happened? At Christmas, God's Son became poor. Jeff, what do you mean? What, what do you mean he became poor? Poor how? He became poor in knowledge. You say, Jeff, he knew a lot. He knew more than anybody. Hang on. As a little baby, he was poor. He was in poverty of knowledge. He became poor in wealth. He became poor in glory. He became poor in power. Poor. He can barely hold his head up. Who is this one who can barely hold the head up? That's God who has become man. How did it happen? At Christmas, God's son became poor. Keyword, by momentarily, momentarily laying aside his visible representation as God. And can I say momentarily laying aside what the theologians tell us? The independent use of his attributes. I know that's kind of theological. Here's what happened. What does it mean when the Bible says... He was rich, but he became poor. He became poor because he laid aside the visible representation of him as God. He's still God, but you can't tell. No one walking around in this building, if, had Jesus been in this building, and we go back in time 2,000 years ago, no one would say, I can tell which one's Jesus. You can't tell. He's laid aside the visible rep representation of himself as God. He's laid aside the independent, just whenever he wants to, use of his attributes. He has now laid them aside. The last Packer quote that I'll give you is this one. Packer writes, by the way, I'm talking about that 33 years of his life is when he became poor. Not poor before that and not poor since that or ever will be. Rich and rich, but poor for this time period that began with Christmas. Packer writes, the Almighty, the Almighty, Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare. And wiggle. Now hold the little rattle in front. No motor skills to actually grab it. Eventually it gets good enough to... Unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. So guys, yes, the real miracle of Christmas was the virgin birth and the conception of the Holy Spirit in her but after that moment, his birth, though it fulfilled all these prophecies and it had angels and shepherds and all of those things, at the end of the day, he really meant it when he, I'm going to go be a human being and I will live the human life. You know what that means? Mary had pain. Yes, Jesus has a belly button. Yes, umbilical cord had to be cut. Yes, when he got hungry, he cried. And when he got tired, he cried. And when he ate and they pat him on the back and he would spit up and burp. All of those things happen. Who is this person? He's coughing and he's sneezing and you cut him and he bleeds. Who is this person? This is God that has really become a real, true human baby. That's just a 
glimpse of the humility of Christ. Rich, infinitely rich, really poor. Guys, every week there's a dependence in what I do that, that is very evident to me. There's a dependence that should be in your mind with what you do, but I live with that every week. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? What I mean is if I'm aware that if God does not show up, nothing good is going to happen. I am totally, every week is writing on whether or not God is going to show up in the direction and in the inspiration, not inspiration, but in the illumination of the scriptures. Are you going, Lord, are you going to give direction? Are you going to give insight? Are you going to reveal some things? Are you going to preach? Are they just going to hear me? Because we both know that I'm no better than anybody else. I'm not clever enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not compelling enough to impact anybody's life. They don't need to hear me. So if you don't show up, nothing good's going to happen. It is really all, always riding on you. Are you going to show up and speak? Are you going to apply this to our lives after we leave and we've long forgotten a handout? Are you going to do this? It's always riding on that. That dependency is frightening, terrifying, urgent, desperate, exciting. That's the dependency that Jesus chose. I'm born in it. What I'm trying to tell you is the self-sufficient son of God chose to enter a brand new position where he is no longer for this period of time self-sufficient. God does not get fatigued. He's God. But Jesus gets fatigued because he doesn't have enough rest. God doesn't get hungry. Jesus got hungry. God smells beautiful and wonderful. Jesus no doubt carried an odor because he lacked hygiene. God has never been ashamed. Jesus would have experienced shame of not having enough clothes. God's never cold. Again, not enough clothes. Jesus would have experienced it. God doesn't need air. But Jesus put himself in a brand new position where he could experience dependence upon oxygen. And because of that, he finds himself gasping for air. Like really rich. Became really poor. How poor? He's so poor. He's literally born in a borrowed stable, laid in a borrowed manger, buried in a borrowed tomb. When he wants to go across the Sea of Galilee, he has to borrow somebody else's boat. The idea we get at the end of his life is that pretty much all he has left is the clothes on his back, and they gamble for that. Poor. This is our Lord. He became poor. It's not just meaning he had less glory than he had. Oh, he had infinite glory, but when he comes here, he has less. No, no, no. It's not just less glory. There's no, there's a point in his life as he's going through the city of Jerusalem and he's nailed naked to a cross. There is no visible glory at that moment. He who is the darling of heaven and everyone in heaven loved him and worships him. He comes to earth and there's no visible glory at the moment, at the time. Third thought this morning quickly it's God's gracious purpose why so we know about this incarnation and we see just a glimpse of this tremendous extraordinary humiliation and humility of Jesus to become a man and even a servant and one who would die 
But why? Go, if you would, quickly. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Another one of my favorite Christmas texts. And for this one, I want to give you two passages. Let's read them quickly. You there? Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Now, here's Christmas. Here it comes. Since, therefore, the children, these are the people who will be adopted as God's children. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Oh, there's the incarnation. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and, flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So read verse 14 again. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, why? That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And secondly, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And what's this about? Kind of remember that text in the back of your mind. Now go one more time, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Familiar text to us. Second, I'm going to look at one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Here's Christmas. For our sake, is Easter as well. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That sounds a lot like what He says in chapter 8. He was rich, but He became poor that we might be made rich. Here we find for our sake, he, God the Father, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's recover the basics. You know these? Peter says, I know you already know them. I know you're established in it somewhat, but I'm going to keep trying to stir you up by way of reminder. Let's be reminded. The Bible says that we have all sinned. We have all sinned. And because of that, all pain and sorrow and suffering and death is a result of sin. We've all sinned. We all have experienced pain and sorrow and suffering, and we will all die. We will all die. Why? It's the results of sin. But, here's Christmas. If you remove, what the Bible teaches is if you remove the sin, you remove the eternal penalty for the sin. Sin took place. Here's the repercussions and consequences of sin. But if you take away the sin, then you remove the eternal consequences. But hang on, Jeff, you can't undo sin. We've already done it. Guys, this is what God has done. God has removed the sin. How? Write this down. Second word is important. Jesus' primary reason, his primary, I'm not saying it's the only reason he became a man, I'm jumping right to the primary reason this morning. Jesus' primary reason. Why did God do this? What is God's gracious purposes in the incarnation and the humility of Christ? 
Jesus' primary reason for becoming a man is so that he could do what he could not do otherwise. Pause right there. The primary reason Jesus became a man is so that he would be able to do what he could not otherwise do. What is it that he could not otherwise do without becoming a man? I'm looking for a one-word answer. Does anybody want to offer it? He cannot die. What's the big deal about dying? He became a man. Primary reason. There are other reasons. We may look at some of those other reasons next week, one, one of them particularly. But his primary reason for becoming a man is so that he could do what he could not do otherwise, which is to die. Why does he need to die? To pay for our sin and to remove our sin. And I'm going I'm to propose to you guys, if you take away the sin, so we've all sinned, but if you take away the sin like Jesus did on the cross with his shed blood, washes away our sin, if you take away the sin, you have now satisfied the holiness of God. Because there's no more sin between us and God. And if you take Jesus' death on the cross as a payment for sin, you're not only satisfying the holiness of God, but you're also satisfying the justice of God. Because Jesus paid the price for our sin. So now, to finish your note, watch. Let's put chapter 8, verse 9, together with chapter 5, verse 21. And here's what we find. That he became temporarily poor and temporarily sin. I know that sounds weird. You mean sinful. I'm going by chapter 5, verse 21. The Word, God's Son, the Christ, Jesus, became poor and temporarily sin so that we can be made eternally rich and eternally righteous. That's why Christmas happened. This is God's purpose. This is what he's after. He wants you to be eternally rich and eternally righteous. Literally what that passage in Hebrews was saying a while ago is this. Jesus used death to kill death. How are you going to kill death? Death has died. Death is not death to me anymore. When I die, please don't feel sorry for me. I'll be separated from you, and my soul and spirit will be separated from my body. But I'm really not separated from anything that's going to matter for a long, long time because if you're one of Christ, you'll be reunited with me one day, and my body will be reunited with me. But death will not be death because I am literally not being separated from God. I'm going to God. Jesus used death, his death, to kill death. Before we hit our last point, I just quickly want to share this because I'd never thought of it this way. Chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin. He became sin. He became what he despises more than anything for us. God's son on the cross for a period of time became what he despises. His nature as pure holy God despises sin more than your nature despises and is opposed to you being burned alive. 
If I were to give you a piece of paper, number one to ten, write down ten ways that if you could choose, God, please don't let me die in these ten ways, I'll promise you in the top one, two, or three, you would, all of us would put on there, I don't want to be burned alive. You're opposed to that. You despise that thought. More than your nature despises that, Jesus' nature despises sin. And yet, here's the thought the Lord put in my mind the other day that I'm going to struggle to get across. Becoming sin for us was hell to him. Like you despise the thought of burning alive, and I think that's why of all the ways God could punish eternally, it is in fire, literal fire. We believe literal fire here. We don't glory in that. We don't love it. That's just the fact. Though you would hate to be in fire, the Lord's nature opposes and despises sin even more. Becoming sin for us was hell for him. That was hell for him. Then on top of that, add the separation from God. More hell for Christ on the cross. Then on top of that, add all the wrath of God being poured out on him. And then finally, come in all the physical things that we make so much of about the nails and the spear and the suffocating and the crown of thorns and the beating and all that. Let's put that last, but let's start with he became sin. It was hell for him to be on the cross. Why did he come? To die on a cross. Why? Because God has this great purpose. He wants to save us from our sins. This is his great plan. And that causes us now to finish with the last thought. You're not really looking correctly at Christmas until you have these responses. What should be our proper response? I'll give you a few and I'll be done. What is our proper response? Did you catch it? The incarnation, the humility, God's great purposes... Jesus has paid for all of our sins on the cross, so much so that God is able to extend salvation as a free gift. So what should be our response? First and foremost, at the front of the line, this must be our response. Everyone in here, as I'm talking about this, please make sure, check your life. Have you had this proper response to Christmas? Number one, receive God's free gift. Receive God's free gift. Receive it. How? Salvation through Jesus Salvation through Jesus is the greatest gift that was bought at the highest price. And because it's the greatest gift bought at the highest price, it can only be received as a free gift. It's the greatest gift, salvation in Christ, but it's been bought at the highest price, the death and blood of the Son of God becoming a man who became poor, and became sin, the greatest gift at the highest price means it can only be received as a free gift. You have to receive it as a free gift. Here's what's so unfortunate. Most people hear the Christmas story and they'll go to church and they'll hear a preacher give a gospel challenge and they'll tell them what God has done to save them and literally start quoting Bible verses like this. For by grace are you saved. This is what the Bible says. Here's God's plan. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What that means is God says, do I have a pen? Here's the illustration we use. If that pen were salvation, God is simply saying, if you're going to be saved, I'm going to give it to you. 
You will do nothing else except receive it because my son has already supplied all that it takes for you to be saved. Will you let me give you salvation? I did that in 1979. I let God, I let the Lord save me and I received the free gift of Christ. Have you? Most people hear the free offer and the gift of God and they think, there's got to be another way, and I really would like the other way. I want to kind of earn my own way to heaven. And they try to be good and stop doing this sin and joining a church and getting wed in a baptistry and signing a card and shaking a preacher's hand and praying a prayer. Instead of ultimately, it boils down to this. God says, I'm going to give you salvation. Will you take it? And then the last proper response, once you have received the gift of Christ, number two, We must show gratitude by offering your life and your resources to God. You'll not even turn there, but after you write that thought, listen to what Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus talks to a man, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Guys, what I'm about to read is a very short verse. We must always keep this connected with Christmas. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, For the Son of Man, what's Christmas about? Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Guys, here's what that means for grace for you. We, when we think about Christmas, number one, have I received the free gift of God? Number two, if I have, if I'm a Christian, I am now saved from my sins by trusting Jesus only, by only trusting Christ. Now what? We must always keep this mission of Christ connected to Christmas. I want to give it to you in this thought right here. Write this note. Christmas, there's a reason. Christmas is the perfect season to give to missions. I don't think it's just an accident that our Lottie Moon Christmas offering for foreign missionaries is received here at Christmas season. I don't think it's as simply as a practical you know, kind of shrewd tactic. Hey, you know, people are looking to spend some of their year in spending and they need to make up for some of their charitable giving. Let's do Lottie Mint. There may be part of that in it, but I, I would hope the greater reason is this. While people are thinking about God giving us the indescribable gift and knowing that the mission is that God is seeking and saving the lost all around the world, then that's the perfect time to talk about missions and to give to missions, and it's the perfect time to share your faith. It's the perfect time for you to talk about your faith. Talk to people. When you hear Christmas songs and when you're speaking with someone, hey, guys, ladies, when you're riding in the truck and that coworker is over there and you're not thinking about anything and all of a sudden a Christmas song comes up and there's a lyric, man, hey, tell me about Christmas. What do you guys do for Christmas? And once they move past traditions and food and presents and running over here and running over there, then come back and ask them, what do you think Christmas is ultimately about? And Hopefully they get it right. If they don't, say, well, let me tell you about the incarnation of God. And let me tell you about the humility of Jesus. And let me tell you about God's great purposes. And have you received his free gift? This is the season to give to missions. If ever we're going to do it, this is, okay, guys, listen. Right now there are thousands of people on foreign fields gone to the nations because they have a special call on their life. The question is, are we, so they've gone, and they're ready to tell, are we ready to send them and support them and to pray for them? Thousands already there. Hundreds 
this year will have a special call on their life, and they're ready to go and tell, are we ready to send them? And are we ready to pray for them? That's the proper response to Christmas. And then lastly, Romans 12, 1. Let's finish there. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you. He's talking to us. He's really talking to the Romans, but this applies to us. Grace view, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Can I just say it this way? In light of Christmas and God's great plan of salvation and the humility of Christ, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, Chip Ingram helped us understand this is talking about a literal call. Romans 12.1, coupled with Romans 6.13, if you want to write that on the side, Romans 6.13 and Romans 12.1 is talking about an actual specific time in your life where you do this. Like it's really a one-time thing, and then it is to be repeated as needed. Again, I don't have time to go to Romans 6, but it's there as well. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, and can I say on the basis of the truth of today's message, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. It's about your body. Present your body, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I'm presenting it to God. Here's my final question before we close our eyes and bow our heads. Here's my question. When in your life, Have you specifically, I want you to put a time on it. When have you specifically done what Romans 12.1 has called for? In light of the incarnation of God. And he who was rich becoming poverty. For these great purposes of God. To use death to kill death. And to make salvation for free. In light of that. And in light of the fact that God is seeking and saving the lost. And he uses people to do it. And therefore, we should be sharing the faith and supporting those who are going to other parts of the world to share the faith. In light of that, we should be fulfilling chapter 12, verse 1. When did that happen in your life? I was 12. It was 1982. It was in Swannanoa Valley Independent Missionary Baptist Church just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And it was at this side of the altar. And it was on a Sunday night. I don't remember what month. All I know, it was, I was 12 years old, and it was, the building has since burned. But I had a time in my life as a little boy, God said, you give your whole self to me. And that night, I did it. When have you done that? If you never do anything else, if you don't give anyone else anything for Christmas this year, be sure that you have given God. You. Lord, it isn't much, but I give you me. Because of your indescribable gift. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Can I just ask you this, this morning? Take a moment right now and let this be either a continuation of what you've been doing or the beginning of what you're going to do in the days ahead. Would you right now talk to God on your own and thank God for his indescribable gift of The Word made flesh. Thank Him. Tell the Father, thank Him. And can I add this? Please be sure 
that you have received God's free gift by faith alone. Just literally it's this, ladies and gentlemen. You say, I don't know that I've ever received God's free gift. I've been trying to do better and work my way to heaven. Take a moment right now and just hear the word of God. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible says, as many as receive him, just receive him. To them, he gives the authority to be the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It is this. God, I don't understand it all, but my understanding says that you really did become flesh. You died on a cross to pay for my sins. It is enough to pay for my sins. And you're going to give me salvation for free based on that? I believe it. Just at this moment, communicate with God. Confess your sins to him. Lord, I am a sinner, but I receive your forgiveness of my sin based on the death of Christ. Now, just before we pray. When did you give your life to the Lord? If you can't think of a time, a specific time, can I invite you to do it right now? It doesn't have to be a big show. Maybe just right now as I pray, you need to say, Lord, I've never done this. I've been out buying presents for other people and getting all excited about that or burdened down with that. And really the main thing I need to do this Christmas, I am giving you my whole life and all my resources to use as you see fit. And I know you want the best life for me. Give yourself to Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's stand and close in prayer. Thank you so much for coming. If we can help you, we'll be at the back. Let's pray. Father, I want to begin, Lord, where I just challenged these folks. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your ability, for your willingness and for your ability to do what we could never even understand in making the Word who was with you and is God and is equal with you and one with you, one God. Thank you that you were able and willing to make him be a real human being without losing any of his deity. Lord, thank you for your great plan that was willing for him to be made poor and to die on a cross and to become sin for us. Father, make us grateful for that. Father, if anyone has not yet received the free gift of your salvation... Lord, may today be that day. May they do it even now. And Lord, if they need help in working through that, may they seek us out this morning. And then, Father, may we all, all true Christians at this moment, if we have never done it before, may we right now take you up on the call of Romans 12.1. And Lord, right now, I pray that in this building and some watching online, Lord, that right now, People would be presenting themselves as a present to you. God, I am giving myself as an offering to you. Do what you please. May we do it joyfully. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.